the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's my favorite time of the week. It's my really favorite time of radio when I get to spend an hour with Pete Peterson, as I do every other Friday. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. George Will once wrote that if he knew he had a deadline that day, he woke up a happy man because he looked forward to writing his column. I wake up the same way when I know I get Pete Peterson for a little bit. Pete, how are you, sir? Welcome back. It's great to be back, Seth, and uh, yeah, really excited to to be back and, and chatting with you to end the week. You and I were on uh, a disparate vacation, so so we've missed a missed a little bit of time. You were you were in Hawaii, uh, if I may say so. I already said so. Yep. <laughs> I already outed you. <laughs> <Of> course, <laughs> I went course. to Santa Barbara, and then so yep. we we had to actually have a fill in for you. We had a fill in um, Pete Peterson, uh, but we kept the alliteration. We had Tevi Troy. <laughs> I can only be a step up. As it happens, I'm I'm actually just back from D.C. and I got coffee with Tevi as we're conspiring to uh, develop some educational programming. So this whole uh, thing sounds like a conspiracy. It, really does. it does already. Well, you had a, a well-deserved vacation. I I noticed when you were in Hawaii, not the biggest story, but an interesting cultural take on this. There's one TV show I know more about than any other TV show, or maybe than all the other TV shows combined. It's Magnum P.I. for a lot of reasons. You were there, I think, when the co-star, uh, that uh, great actor Roger Mosley, uh, died, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, that's right. We yeah. were. We, we had just landed, actually, when uh, that news broke, and obviously it was huge news across the islands. It was it was interesting to me. I was re- doing some research. You know that show. These the, it was about three Vietnam veterans, and it was the first show that ever tr- ever treated them like heroes. I, I once said it was almost a. Um, it was the it was the Vietnam veterans parade. They never really received that TV show um, because it showed them as you know good men and heroic and uh, c- carrying all the martial virtues. But there was an interesting interview Roger Mosley did circa 1983, I discovered, Pete. This is interesting because uh, the guys did cigars, they did uh, brandy, they did beer, but not Roger Mosley. And he was asked about it. Um, they said, you never smoke or drink on, on the show. He goes, nor in real life. I just don't want young black kids to see me doing that. Wow. Wasn't that an interesting thing? He wanted to be a role model by not showing them that sort of thing. And he certainly was, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, and you're right to say there's a lot I've learned about him since the news of his death broke, uh, dying at age 83, yeah. and really from complications from a car accident. Yeah. It wasn't what might be called natural causes. Um, but, yeah, he led a, uh, an exemplary life by all accounts. Uh, was born and grew up in Watts um, and and died in los angeles um but again those yeah that that quotation there really does represent the kind of person he was and and really in many ways the kind of example that he set on the screen yeah no it's interesting i i i don't want 
cultural messages to miss those little stories now and again because I think they say big things, actually. Those little things say big things. You know you know what says big things to me, Pete? Uh, uh, little things that say big things. Uh, I always like to follow uh, – you know, I do follow you on Twitter, but before I ever talk with you on Fridays, I go directly to your page – to see what kinds of things are on your mind and that you're um, disseminating and you're promulgating. And I, I might summarize your week's tweets as having to do with um, separately or even together education and work, education and work. Uh, you were you were highlighting a piece uh, over at National Review on uh, education and, uh, yep. and, and its yeah, relationship well. to family structure. Right. Yep. And yep. then you did something on some research Michael Strain was doing. Can can we talk a little bit about both of those things? Of course. I had uh, yeah, but you know we um, I've gotten to know Ian pretty well. I was first injured Ian Rowe, who's uh-huh. uh, really an amazing individual, uh, founder of a charter school um, in really one of the tougher areas of the Bronx in New York. Uh, has gone on and is now launching a new charter school in New York as well. He's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and is out with a new book um, really on on personal agency, empowerment, and self-governance. And uh, we had him out to speak here last year to students about the new book, which is called Free. And uh, it is not free, but it is called free. Uh-huh. Um, but it is about uh, really personal agency and, and making decisions and taking uh, responsibility for one's life, even in the midst of environments where other people have made choices uh, that could be seen as as putting hurdles in your path. Um, and so he is out with some new research in this piece in National Review that is uh, continuing to hold uh, to those those kinds of, of principles, especially in elementary and high school age kids. Fascinating. I'm going to have to get him on. Um, you know, you. Oh, you, yeah. Yeah. You, you do a great service. I don't know anyone else who does this like you do, Pete, or if anyone even tries. But you're a great hub and collector of all the interesting things that are going on in think tank world and public policy that kind of unites the the various think tanks, which sometimes and and personnel, which sometimes have you know a, a polite competition. You do a great job of bringing them around. So just yesterday, just yesterday, I interviewed um, on on the topic of family formation and education. I interviewed Brad Wilcox. You know Brad? Oh you know, yeah, yeah, at the University yep. of Virginia. And yep. it looks like Ian Rowe's nice piece project. is getting into that same same issue, isn't it? It very much is, you know. Uh, and just to go off on that yeah. um, course of discussion for a second, Brad's Brad's call, and, and it does connect with much of what Ian's talking about, is that when we're evaluating the success of uh, children in school systems, uh, we need to look deeper than simply racial or even ethnic or or household income or male, female, we need to look at, are these kids coming out of what might be called intact families where, where two parents are present and use that as a lens through which to understand. And it certainly is Wilcox's uh, belief and not just a belief. I mean, it's something that he's grounded in research, and, and uh, I know Ian Rowe believes this as well, 
is that will be seen eventually as the determining factor of childhood success. It will not be household income, and it will not be a so-called racial gap so much as it is uh, the family formation gap. That's and that, of course, can cut sorry. across racial categories and ethnic categories um, and, and certainly household income categories. Uh, but that really needs to be the way that we should be looking at evaluating student performance. That's right. And I think you you quote Ian Rowe uh, on that same concept. We must have the moral courage to measure student achievement by family structure grouping as routinely as we do by race, class, and gender. You know, I almost wonder, Pete, if we if we put more of a focus on family structure. Uh, I know some in the in the research community, some in the think tank community, talk about family structure. They think economic issues. Sometimes they think race issues. But if we just yeah. maintained it to the family structure issue, maybe it could get us out of some of these tensions that we no, get caught up I, in in race. I think you're totally right. And in that, I mean, there there could be seen, uh, dare I propose, um, a greater sense of uh, the community. Yeah. Uh, that we are all, um, you know, that we are all faced with particular human challenges. Uh, and, and this one around family formation, uh, particularly in those childhood years, um, we know of the direct correlation between family formation and what might be called antisocial and eventually criminal behavior. Yeah. We know that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And we also really do know it as it regards educational yeah. attainment and performance. But we continue to highlight and put in headlines uh, the differences solely on uh, race and ethnicity and certainly to some degree male-female. That's right. Uh, but without looking at what the social scientists would call the cross-tab of, of family formation. And again, Ian and, and Brad, two great practitioners and researchers, have said that really does need to be the first lens through which we, we look at these things. Yeah, and it cuts across. I, I mean, we also disaggregate data on education when it comes to regions, too. But it seems to me that family formation thing cuts across all those other, uh, yes, cross tabs. Let me, there's the music. Let me hit a quick break with you, Pete, and we'll pick up on that when we come back. It also, as we have discussed before and maybe worth reminding the audience, has a great deal to do with poverty and welfare as well. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Totally wonderful, active Twitter feed as well. Pete, the number four CA. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School at Public Policy, where he is also the Brown Family Dean's Chair. Pete, talking about uh, family formation and education, uh, family formation and crime, uh, I, the more intact family, the less crime, the more intact the family, the better the education outcome. Uh, also related to education, I think some of the research, Brad Wilcox and uh, – and, uh, and and what you saw at the National Review and Ian Rose piece, discipline problems in school as well uh, have to do with family formation, but also poverty and welfare. We have known that probably forever, uh, haven't we? Mm-hmm. That That's probably the longest thing we've known. It turns out family might be as important. 
important or more important than almost any other thing when it comes to these social policies, which isn't a surprise. Aristotle says in the first book of the politics, right, that the two institutions man creates in civil society are the government and the family, right? Yeah, no, that's so true. And uh, and we do know, I mean, the research is is pretty clear on that. We have economic terms like crowding out, uh-huh. which is uh, an accepted economic uh, essentially analysis of public policy that shows when government takes a larger role in almost whatever the service provision endeavor is, uh, that the institutions of civil society, uh, whether it be uh, family or uh, nonprofit organizations, were, are essentially crowded out of the public square. And, uh, and so as we think about family formation and its importance, not only as it pertains to service provision, but also these areas of uh, preparing future citizens, um, you get these little um, indicators like uh, educational attainment and performance, which I think the phrase, you know, the 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 school to prison pipeline is, yeah. is too belabored, but it, where there's a where there's a grain of truth in that analysis is that it shows if uh, that there there can be seen a connection that if you're seeing some of these poor performances in the education system, uh, you there is a, a good chance that you can see uh, later antisocial behavior. Yep. It turns out the family formation dictates an awful lot. The presence of a father in that family formation is 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 probably uh, the most crucial of factors, especially when it comes to to young boys. But one of the interesting things about family formation, Pete, or intact families and social policy, I don't know if you and I have ever discussed this. If we have, uh, I apologize for bringing it up again. But one of the first scholars who was on to this was Daniel Moynihan, right? Daniel Patrick mm-hmm. Moynihan. Yep. And, and one of his latter interviews, maybe with Tim Russert before one or the other passed away. I don't remember who. But um, Moynihan said something along the lines of when it comes to understanding fatherlessness, he had spent his entire career trying to figure it out and didn't have a clue as how to make it better. And I yeah. thought, boy, that's an awfully, awfully, awfully yeah. bright white flag I wish he never raised. Because it does seem to me we do know a few things. Robert Rector over at Heritage was once proposing some interesting theories on how to improve family formation and how to yeah. uh, encourage it. Uh, I, I don't like that kind of surrender. I think messaging matters, doesn't it? It does. And I think, well, well first, what I, what I would credit Moynihan, the art neoconservative with at least allowing is that it's difficult it's a difficult place for government to step in yeah it's it's not a difficult place for government to step out of right, right back right. to our earlier discussion about crowding out but mm-hmm. it's a difficult place for governments to step in but I think sometimes where that um, where that can slide into even more deleterious uh, cultural impacts is where you just throw your hands up and say, well, this is too sensitive a topic to talk about. Right. And 
I'll never forget, I think we have talked about this before, but that last chapter in Coming Apart with Charles Murray, uh-huh. in which Murray really gets to, as best he can, <laughs> as a sociologist, yeah. uh, trying to raise some uh, uh, prescriptions for the for the country, given what he's seen as this vast separation in the lifestyles of the second quintile, the fourth quintile, um, especially around this issue of family formation. And one of the points he just seems almost, and I've heard him speak on the book several times, but almost exasperatingly, he says, well, now the people in that fourth quintile, you know, this would be uh, upper middle class, you might say, need to at least be able to allow and say that this is the emphasis that they themselves place on family formation and what might be called the bourgeois values is something that they're practicing without preaching. Right. Right. While the people who are in the second quintile, those in the the lower middle class, are essentially not hearing from anyone else in society that this these are certain standards right. that we need to consider and can really result in where we stand uh, financially and culturally. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there has been such a vast separation, uh, in this case between 1960 and, and 2010, when Murray was doing his analysis. And I think that's the thing that really is missing, is that we've gotten into this place where the discussion around family formation almost becomes, if so facto, something off the table. Right. Right. We we can't talk about it in polite company. But if we're going to be about the science, in this case the social science, then we need to be able to have these serious conversations about there are indicators out there. We know what can create conditions of poverty. Uh, We know what can create conditions for antisocial behavior later in life, and we know what influences educational performance, and it's not just the school system. That's right. What's become taboo to talk about, uh, what, what has become taboo to talk about in many cases to solve our social problems, whether we're talking about uh, crime, whether we're talking about educational outcomes, whether we're talking about welfare, seems to be two things people are hesitant or have been had their fingers burned in trying to discuss. Uh, and that is, yeah, intact families, fatherhood, uh, marriage on the one hand, drug use on the other. These two things show up again and again and again, particularly in the criminal justice system certainly with educational outcomes and disparities. And uh, we see again and again people who bring them up. Charles Murray is one example. Who's the professor at Penn? Amy Wax is another. Amy Wax, uh, yeah. Right. May, maybe a little bit, a few of Peter the others. McCarthy. Moynihan, certainly. Certainly Moynihan. Yeah. You know, they get their fingers burned. Maybe we can just pick up on that a little bit. There when is, because there's an interesting nexus here that, yeah. that I think would be worth exploring. All right, yeah, let's do that on the other side of the break. And then I want to talk about... Men and work, men and the workforce as well. I'm Seth Leibson. He is Pete Peterson at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, best school of public policy in the country, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're looking for a graduate degree in the field, make the country a better place, that's your place to go. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We were just saying, you know, some of the uh, elephants in the room, if you will, I don't, I, I don't know what the right expression is, some of the things that have become taboo turn out in social policy to be the biggest issues that if we could get our hands and heads around would actually get to uh, no longer um, nibbling on the edges, but actually solving our biggest of problems that seem 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 unsolvable. Education deficits, welfare, crime, family formation, uh, drug use. Uh, Pete, maybe there's a few other things on the list. But we were also talking about some pioneers in those fields, all of whom have had experience trying to touch those issues, trying to get their heads and hands around those issues, only to be um, only only to be sent to Coventry in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, and again, uh, that's why it's. Uh, I think the word used taboo is yeah. is right, right. In, the, in the last segment. I, I think, and it's only become increasingly more difficult. But as it's become more difficult, we're seeing more and more research bear it out. Yeah, right. And you have these people out there. It's like ineluctably true that what you can't talk about <laughs> is the solution. Yeah, right. right. That's right. Yeah. Anne and Ian Rowe, who's you know got a best-selling book out now on the subject and, and proving it. And so w- what I wanted to bring up is there there is an interesting nexus here specifically on the issue of education, Good. right, which is Good. that those of us on the right, I think, are are in the right place to be arguing about uh, the, the various issues we're seeing in our K-12 education system, particularly the public education system. And uh, we could go on for the next several hours talking about the problems there. At the same time, most public educators uh, at a certain point uh, will, will say it can't just be on us. Right. And of interest is what people like Ian Rowe and Brad Wilcox and Amy Wax and Charles Murray and others are saying is that, you know what, it really can't just be on you Mm -hmm. because you're just the end of the line for kids coming out of family situations that may actually inhibit academic performance. That's right. That's right. So the kid is trained in 5 to 12 years of uh, uh, an anti or asocial situation before the teacher even sees them, right? That's right. And and obviously as they progress through the K-12 system, um, you know, there can be challenges outside of those 8 to 3 o'clock hours Mm -hmm. um, that – I think there could be an interesting nexus point, which is to say Ian Rowe is right when he says this, what he, you know, what's been called variously, and by people on the left, even researchers at Brookings, for example, the success sequence, right, which is this three-step formula that for people who get at least a high school education, get a full-time job, and marry before having children – your chances of being in poverty are 3% or less. Right, right. It's now, almost a statistical impossibility. Almost, yeah. yeah. And again, it goes back to that, what are the lenses we're looking to evaluate educational performance? We're not really using those lenses. Yep. But we're, not, we're not using the, the lenses that come out of, that might have some identifier as personal behavior. Um, but again, all to say that um, 
there could be an interest, and I know Ian is trying to do it through his charter schools as he tries to weave in this content along with the reading, writing, and arithmetic to say that, yeah, we, we need to understand that uh, the school is one part of a kid's day and the other things that are going on can impact that child's performance. And those things really do relate directly to family formation. And we should be taking those things seriously, understanding we may not be able to do a lot about it, but at least we should be able to make the children and parents aware that their behavior does, sounds silly to say this, but that their behavior does have an impact on their child's performance and chances of future success. This was a short segment. We have a bigger one, a longer one coming up, and I want to implant a concept, maybe pick up on this, because I, I know the audience will be thinking this, and I'm thinking it too, Pete, which is I wonder if from the teacher's perspective, the educator's perspective, if there might be a generational difference, because you're absolutely right. Teachers used to say it can't all be on us, and we're expected to do too much. Um, too many parents have surrendered to us, but there seems to be also a younger cohort of parent of teachers, rather a younger cohort of teachers that is saying, "No, we want to be the parents." You know where I'm going with this? <laughs> they yes, they kind of believe in a parents' patriae almost as if the school is the state. You get this with the sexual revolution going on in our school. Let's say a word about that when we come back. Younger teachers, the younger cohort that actually wants to be there in place of the parents in a way that the older generation of teachers that we grew up with and maybe in our age category never really wanted. Maybe I'm making too much of it, too. You'll straighten me out. You're the consumer teacher. We'll be right back. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy School, doing so much great work. If you are interested in a uh, career or degree in uh, public policy, helping improve the community or the country, that's the place to go. Pepperdine, a lot of problems in academia. Pepperdine is the solution. Pete, we were just talking about, you know, the role of family, the role in education outcomes. Now let's just for a moment spend one second on, on, on it in the classroom. I was making the point right before the break, the cohort of teachers you and I grew up with and who are in our age group, they were saying, you're absolutely right, that too much is being thrust upon us in the raising and rearing of children. We're, we're expected to do the work that we would expect to be done at home. But there does seem to be a younger generation of teacher, a much younger t generation of teacher, mostly in their 20s and early 30s that are saying, oh, no, we want to be there in place of the parents. You see this play out a lot in this whole debate about sexual assignment and, and, and gender affirmation. Am I, am I yeah. making too much of that, or, or is you that know, in there, I don't too? Think you, I don't think you are, because it does strike back to other conversations okay. we've had around okay. this, the, the broader philosophy of education, which is being taught and has been taught for the last several decades in our schools of education, many of them at least, um, about this view that uh, the, the goal of education is to free students uh, from the restrictions of tradition right. often um, articulated through family and faith. Right. And so in that, they, the teachers are seen as the ones that are automatically at odds with uh, certainly traditional family and traditional um, moral 
inculcating institutions. And uh, so I, I think you do raise a fair point. I just wonder at the same time, as we continue to see, especially here in California, continuing poor performance by our educational institutions on, as, as borne out by literacy rates and so forth, that if we were to get a clearer sense of the next, the connection there between educational performance and family formation, whether there, there couldn't be a connecting point made to say that even for the most radical, that these, uh, the views that can be taught in schools that family formation doesn't matter um, are just toxic. Yeah. Uh, for the for the children that we are ostensibly um, tasked with educating, yeah, that that's something. Let's you and I dedicate to trying to accomplish uh, some movement on I, because I think I think you're onto something big here, Pete. Which is you know it might be this family formation issue or intact families, maybe. Uh, however, we decide to phrase it might be the way to get us out of these other debates that bog Mm. us down having to do with race. Now, I know there are connections to family formation there as well, but there don't have to be. There don't 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 have have to be. be. Yeah, that's right. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk to you about um, was this other great piece you posted from the work of Michael Strain, whereas in the 50s, 3% of men, working age men, which we describe as what, roughly 25 to 55, somewhere in that age cohort category, 25 to 54 maybe. In the 50s, yep. 3% of men in that age category were not in the workforce, were not. Uh, that has increased something like, uh, what, about 200%, maybe 300% since then. We now have something closer to... What do we have? Something closer to 7 million men now, maybe something like 12% yep. in that area are not it's in the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah, something so really dangerous. It is. And again, it, it reflects, you know, uh, the, that line about there being lies uh, <laughs> and statistics. Yeah. I mean, this. Uh. This really goes to how unemployment is reported, and I'm sure your listeners know that it's one thing to talk about unemployment and an unemployment rate as it pertains to uh, those unemployed as a part of the entire population. It's another thing to look at the unemployed that are part of really a smaller segment which are understanding the, the very important number that I think isn't is vital for every American to constantly keep an eye on is the labor participation rate. And it's the labor participation rate, those able-bodied Americans, men and women, who um, could be in the workforce, could be actively engaged in the workforce, but aren't. And usually when you see dips in that, uh, and, and again, as, as Strain points out, when you were back in the 50s, not to point out a halcyon area, but at least a point of comparison, sure. uh, you were looking somewhere in the, na- in the mid to high 90 percentage rates for American males to be engaged actively in the labor force. That's right. And now we're, we seem to be sliding towards the mid 80 percentage That's rates. Right. That's right. And in that, um, that really needs to be something that 
we keep in mind, especially as we hear unemployment rates dropping, one of the, the untold stories, or at least not prominently told stories, about the news that we are so-called beginning to return to more normal unemployment rates is that is happening in part because we are seeing it the unemployment rate as a part of a smaller denominator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that, it's it's going to look better. We're going to see unemployment rates nationally sliding back to 6 and 5 and 4%, but that's of a smaller number because the labor force participation rate has been dropping off a table. That's and right. That's the right. The causes for that, um, certainly in many ways exacerbated by COVID and the federal and state level um, benefit policies and programs that were extended uh, are still having ramifications. Including maybe Medicaid. Uh, Nick Eberstadt, I think also at AEI, was doing some yep. work on this a few years ago. He had a big piece in commentary, something like our miserable 21st century where he was talking about those working-age males not in the workforce. You know what he said? I didn't know this, but based off the work, I think it was Alan Kruger. You know his work. I think it was he was using Alan Kruger's analysis to see about half of those men, half of them are addicted to opiates. That's a, that, that, that is a serious issue. It is. And, of course, you know, these issues around deaths of despair, yeah, right. we are still – unfortunately, on the front end of understanding the impact of the COVID lockdowns on the increase in uh, fentanyl use and opioid use more broadly, yep. uh, particularly by this 25 to 54-year-old cohort yep. um, that we're exploring here with these labor force participation rates. But yeah, that that is a that is a big uh, contributing factor as to why we're seeing that. Because, as again, I'm sure your listeners know, I mean, it's we're in this weird place where we're seeing declining labor force participation rates, but increasing help wanted lists. Yes, 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 yes. And so lines are crossing that, in weird ways, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. And I think you know, for you to touch on the the opioid crisis, which again, um, exacerbated by by COVID and, yep. and policy responses to it, um, that has to be one of the contributing factors here. You and I uh, were catching up to We spent a lot of time on the education stuff. For our next visit, let's talk more about men and work. Can we do that next mm-hmm. time we, we get together in a week or so? Pete, I would love to do a, a deeper delve into, into that, a deeper dive into that with you. For sure. Look I appreciate it. it, man. Yeah, I see. I hate finishing the week with you because I'm all energized now. You know, <laughs> I am too. <laughs> yeah. I am too. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for a soporific, and all you're doing is caffeine. Pete <laughs> 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 Peterson, my guy, I love you, man. Dean at the public uh, at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is the website. Pete, welcome back from all your travels. And I hope you didn't find this to be a travail. We'll look forward to talking to you next time, sir. Sounds great, Seth. All right. God bless you, sir, and Godspeed. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really good people. They are investors who do well by doing good for others. You can be part of that as well. Investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Investyrefi.com. 
com. I, I do want to talk with Pete and maybe all even next week more about this issue of work. It's it's an incredibly important issue. Um, I hate idleness. There's a reason uh, it was Jeffrey Chaucer, I think, first formulated the phrase um, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Uh, more right he could not have been. I know some people find language uh, in the Bible that comes close, but that construction, gift of Chaucer, who was obviously working off the Bible as well. But in any event, um, this was one of my huge concerns during work stoppages, business shutdowns during COVID, is uh, I didn't know if for certain once we incentivized and dictated and mandated not working, if we weren't incentivizing and dictating and mandating something that goes against human nature as well as civilizational success. You don't want to reward, much less induce, indolence. Um, John Witherspoon, James Madison's teacher at the College of New Jersey, better known as Princeton, said, do, uh, do not live idle and die contemptible. Do not, no, he said, do not live useless and die contemptible. Do not live useless and die contemptible. These people, these Chaucers, these uh, Witherspoons, uh, they were smart. There's a reason kids love playing store as kids. Uh, industriousness is natural. It is unnatural to quash it. It's also unnatural to end the show on such a pregnant point, but end the show we must. End the week we must. Thanks for spending some of it with us. Until Monday, God bless you all and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.